0: Good morning, Proverbs class. This is our last class in the study of Proverbs today. Two weeks' time, I'll start a a class in here on strengthening your marriage, actually nurturing a vision for a gospel-centered marriage, open to everyone. I've been married 40 years, I still need the class, so everyone is welcome. A couple of programming notes, so today we'll do the problem of evil. Next Sunday, Janice and I will be away on vacation. Dory is going to do a lesson on singing, because it does come up in Proverbs. But today we want to look at the problem of evil. Anybody read uh, Proverbs 24 this morning? Right from the start, evildoers, evil workers, the wicked—there it is. And here's the here's here's the main notion. Along the path of life, this is the principal image for how where God wants you to find blessedness, blessedness, Uh, happiness is the science of living blessedly or finding the path of life along the path. Not too far into it, you realize others hurt me, I hurt others. There's poison ivy and poisonous snakes on the side of the path. Things don't work like they should. So we experience suffering and evil. We we live in a Genesis 3 world. So the question is, in in other words, you realize at some point we're no longer in paradise, Toto. You you were built for paradise and you realize you're not in it. So this is the... This is the problem of evil. Let's pray and ask God for wisdom. Lord, we do live in a very, very fallen world. And this is the world into which you have come to redeem us. Thank you. As an aspect of the redemption we have in Christ is the mind of Christ through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Use it to inform our thinking, to set us free, uh, to live wisely in an evil and a fallen world. For the glory of Jesus. Amen. In theology proper, we're studying what's called theodicy. That's the technical term for the problem of evil. It's a compound word that comes from theos, God, D.C., justice. So theodicy is an attempt to justify God in the face of the reality of suffering and evil. So what we're going to see is that you sort of have... Four things you can either affirm or deny. And uh, I'll, I'll come to that in a second. Let's look at how the problem is classically stated. Here's classically stated. Anyone who studies this will say this is the way the problem is classically stated. If God desires that there be evil in the world, then he is not good. Okay? He's not good. He desires there is evil. If God does not desire evil, yet it exists, then God is not powerful or sovereign. In the Bible, the one book that most specifically addresses this problem as a whole is the book of Job. Job as a genre is a wisdom debate. And if you know how Job concludes, basically Job has to put his... God takes him out to the woodshed and basically gives him a spanking... And he puts his hand over his mouth and says, basically, uh, God knows best. Okay, but the Bible tells us a lot to help us understand this problem. And I would like to reframe, reframe the question this way, the problem of evil. Who needs to know? Who needs to know? So you probably had an experience speaking to a young college student, studying philosophy, sitting at Starbucks, in a very safe and free country, debating the problem of evil, right? Sometimes putting God on trial, sometimes not. So the question is, for whom is evil and suffering a problem? For people who suffer? Yes. They need to know. They need answers. Um, So, And usually, when people object to God based on this problem, there's often a personal context in which they have suffered. So it's important to remember that. Don't just run to the philosophical, biblical answers. Take time to enter into the ways in which they have suffered. There's usually a personal context for people when they're struggling with this problem. So what I want to do next is is tease out the options, the various different answers to the question... How can a good God allow evil? First option: deny the reality of evil. So you come down here and you deny the reality of evil. This is the position of Christian science, the writings of Mary Baker Eddy. Evil is an illusion. It's nothing. It's unreal. It's a false belief. Yeah, I know. We just kind of frown and go, what? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Secondly, God isn't powerful. So here are your four realities: God, his goodness, and sovereignty. And evil, so you can come in here and you can say, Oh, I believe in God, I believe in God's goodness, I believe in evil, but God isn't in control. This is this view was made popular in our country in the early 80s, in the early 80s by a Jewish rabbi named Harold Kushner. He wrote a best selling book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Context for him, he had a ten year old son die of cancer. Awful thing. So that's what gave rise to this book. He's very honest uh, in that. And there are some good things in the book about how to deal pastorally with people who are suffering. We're grateful for that. The conclusion he comes to, and I'll read this because I don't want to subject you to such blasphemous words. These are utterly blasphemous words. Here's his conclusion, and I'm not creating a straw man. These are the very words he uses in the next to last pages of the book. I can recognize God's limitations. He is limited in what he can do by the laws of nature and by the evolution of human nature and human moral freedom. I can worship a God who hates suffering but cannot eliminate it more easily than I can worship a God who chooses to make children suffer and die, hence his own context, for whatever exalted reason. Are you capable of forgiving and loving God even when you have found out that he is not perfect Can you learn to love and forgive him despite his limitations? Now, that's just blasphemous. I hate saying it. God never needs to be forgiven, and God is not limited. But that's one view. This book was a bestseller in America. So he's a rabbi. Some of the places he uses. So what what are his presuppositions driving this conclusion? Tell me what some of his presuppositions are. God is limited. Where does he get that idea? From the Bible? Probably not. From his own experience, no doubt he prayed you know, to Yahweh to heal his son, but, and that didn't happen. So, you can deny the reality of evil, you can deny that God is sovereign. And you don't have a problem either way. There's no, there's no problem here. Gail?
1: Isn't the problem
0: Yeah, that's certainly part of it, yes. But what he's saying is God is not powerful over human sickness. God isn't in control. And um, he doesn't want to do away with the love of God. So he says, I can't worship a God who is. See, his presupposition is, given what I think God should be like, that's the God that I'll believe in. So this is a God of his own imagination, is it not? How could he get this being a Bible believer? You just couldn't. Okay, let's go to the next option. God isn't good. Sorry, Mary?
2: Oh well, No, I was just going to say he, he hates suffering, but he can't uh, eliminate
0: His it. hands are tied. He can't do anything about no, it.
2: No, that's he that's his power.
0: So God's good, but he's not powerful. Right. right. Third option, God isn't good. So you can eliminate the problem of evil. You can eliminate Mary Baker Eddy. You can eliminate God's sovereignty. Or you can come up here and eliminate that God is good. Now, I think this is where most Christians or theists fall out on this issue people who've struggled and had serious losses in their lives, they know inherently God could have done something about it, but he didn't, therefore they doubt his goodness, right? And this is where I think people fall out as a pastor. So, so that's the question I'm raising. Do you think this is where many people fall out when they choose to walk away from God, when they suffer terrible loss? He's all-powerful, why did He let that happen? Right? Probably where most of us in the room would come if we were to struggle with a terrible, terrible tragedy in our lives. Where was God? I know He could have stopped this. Right? That's not something we really question. God is God. He is all powerful. Fourth option. Nate. I mean, it
3: depends on what your definition of good is. There of what? Of what good? It is Yes. I mean, because what happens is we see a very limited. We don't see everything. Yes. So if you're in a case of. No, you you think of all the children that are slaughtered when Jesus was born. Yes. How can a good God allow that? Well, what God determined there was that that would be used as a proof that his son was the Messiah. And the good that comes of that is much greater than the problem that happened there. But if you only see all those people dying, you could say, well, well, why? How can God allow this? But we don't see the big picture. Good.
0: And we'll get to that in the handout. Our view is limited, but that's a very good point. For dualism, good and evil are equals in a cosmic battle... Uh, if you're an opt, if you believe this, and you're an optimist, you basically say things will turn out for the best in the end. If you're a pessimist, you'll say nice guys finish last. Okay, this is not a biblical worldview. There's not this two powers of evil duking it out. God is sovereign, as C.S. Lewis said. The devil is God's devil. He never does anything outside of God's sovereign control. God's absolutely in control of everything, as we'll see. Number five, the secular view of evil. Can you locate good and evil among mere molecules? So the secular worldview is all that exists in the world is molecules in motion. And the the atheist, the secularist, wants to step in and say, Ah, but you need to be, so look at our public schools. Look at our public schools. God isn't in the public schools. This is a decidedly materialistic worldview. right? If you go down to biology class, what do they teach you? You came from slime, you're going back to slime. But if you go to sociology class you look at the rules of it, be kind, be good, share, don't cheat, be honest, and what's the million-dollar question? Where do you get those values from molecules? You can't. Molecules don't assign values to anything. Molecules are just molecules. So as I said last week in my sermon, what one blob of chemicals does to another is frankly irrelevant. Right? In that view. In that view. Now, atheists... To give them credit, they do want to talk about the problem of good and evil. I've heard atheists debate. One atheist said this when he was challenged to define evil. He said that which, de- which decreases the comparative happiness for the greatest number of people, a consensus, consensus reinforced by the teaching of society. And your first question you want to ask is, says who? Who are you to impose that view on my morality? That's awfully narrow-minded, isn't it? That's awfully dogmatic, isn't it? Where did you come up with those categories of happiness? Greatest number of good. right? It's totally arbitrary in a secular worldview. You don't locate good and evil among molecules. Molecules are just impersonal molecules. So there's no problem here with evil. You can't define it. Moving on to, and, and incidentally, the desire, why do, we, why do our atheists, Friends and neighbors want to struggle with the problem of evil. What ultimately was the answer to that? Why do they struggle with it? What's that? They
1: suffer too. They,
0: they They suffer too, but they're made in the image of God. These categories of right and wrong, good and evil, honesty, these are decidedly values within the biblical worldview. So apologists call this when they are trying to locate those values in a worldview where there's no justification for them, They call it borrowed capital. You're stealing from my worldview the concept of goodness, righteousness, lawfulness, honesty. These are good things, and we know why they desire those good things. But without philosophical warrant given their worldview.
2: The uh, the atheists like to perpetuate the idea that there's no God or that, that he's equal. Uh, I mean, you know, yes. this is something that they want to do. Yeah, well, don't worry about it. There's no God
0: anyway. Yes. yes. Well, I don't blame them for being since I don't blame them for sincerely per- perpetuating a worldview. If they're convinced it's right, it's good for them to act on that worldview, right? Yeah. Right Within their own context. So, never say they're not sincere. I believe that there is sincerity there. Sixth option, uh, Ghostbusters. Anybody know what I mean by Ghostbusters? It's a, one of the comedies that came out in the early 80s. I didn't like it. I guess I didn't have a sense of humor the day that I saw it. I really didn't like it. All my Christian friends, oh, it's so funny, so funny. It was not amusing to me because here's the thesis. Human beings can conquer evil by their ingenuity and determination. Really? No. That's not taking seriously how utterly powerful the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places are. Human beings can't touch those. The, the, the very idea that they can is demonic. Isn't it? So, Ghostbusters, sorry guys, I was not amused. That's just me. And then seven, the Christian worldview, affirms both the perfect goodness of God and his absolute sovereign control over all things. The Bible compromises neither. It's a tension impossible to hold without faith because we trust that what God says is true. So, for which worldview is evil and suffering a problem? Only the Christian worldview. What I'm trying to show you that is that in all these other worldviews, the atheist does away with God. There's no problem. The, uh, the herald Christians of the world do away with sovereignty. He doesn't have a problem because God isn't sovereign. People do away with the goodness of God. They don't have a problem because God isn't good. Murray Baker Adel, the Christian scientists, do away with evil. There's no problem. They're the only worldview for which this is a challenging problem is the Christian worldview. Do you see? So that's why we need to see how the Bible answers it. The Bible affirms God's goodness. Somebody read there the couple of verses from Psalms for us nice and loud.
1: His mercy is over all that he has made. Lord is good to all. Common grace. Should
0: I go on?
1: Mm-hmm. Matthew five forty-five. He makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust.
0: The Bible unequivocally asserts the goodness of God uncompromisingly. How about the sovereignty of God? Somebody read those verses for us. All of them in that paragraph.
2: Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures to all generations. Psalm one fifteen three. Our God is in the heavens; He does all that He pleases. Ephesians 1.11 In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will.
0: Okay, good. Thank you, Mary. So what what the Bible is saying is that if this line represents the things over which God has absolute control, is there even a molecule outside of that umbrella? Not a molecule, because that could ultimately, if left to itself, lead to the overthrow of God. Nothing is outside of his control. Uh, About Well, it's been at least 40 years, because I was hearing about it when we were first getting married. Uh, 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 A variation in theology came up called Process Theology, which was an attempt to deal with theodicy. And it basically said this, God himself doesn't know the beginning from the end. He himself is in process. So it's a view, yeah, I know. it's a view that God is limited in his omniscience. God doesn't know what's coming a year from now, okay? Again, I would call that a, a, an imposition on the character of God from human limitation. But I just want you to know, process theology is out there. Uh, is it, I can't give you the name of the person I've got. But anyway, so, two kinds of questions so when it comes to the problem of suffering and evil... Just to be simplistic, there are sort of two ways of coming at it, two questioners. One is the person who says, I'll be the final arbiter of the truth of the matter. Or two, I'm limited, I'm part of the problem. Who can be truly objective about evil? So which one are you? Will you are you just sitting over the Bible in judgment of God, deciding whether or not you like the God of the Bible? Oh, right or will you sit under the Bible, letting it judge you? And if you, if your fundamental worldview—and I know this is yours because you go to a Bible-believing church—if your fundamental approach to this is, I'm limited in what I know. What Nate was saying earlier, what do you find out when the Bible starts to criticize you? As it comes to the problem of evil, you're implicated. <laughs> you're part of the problem. Ergo, you cannot be objective. We can't be objective about this because we're evil. Don't you love the way Jesus talking to his disciples, who probably in the history of the earth at that time would have been, we'd call the most upright people that you could identify. Jesus says to disciples, Oh, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will you have Heavenly Father? He just calls it just rolls off his tongue. You're evil, my disciples. And therefore, we are biased in our view. We have an axe to grind, we're evil. We're born with an aversion to God. So we're not going to get this problem right apart from revelation. So there's two kinds of questioners. Will you be the final arbiter of what is true? And that's why when I do apologetics and I meet with people and this subject comes up, what I try to do, knowing that they want to be the final determinant, what I try to do is help them see the presuppositions of the worldview from which they're arguing the problem. Versus first give all the evidence for why God says he is good and he is sovereign. Look at the presuppositions of the worldview from the person who thinks they're in a position to judge God on this. Okay? All right. So what does God say? The Bible affirms, number one, yes, there is evil and suffering in the world. This world we live in is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Somebody read for us then about the origin of evil, uh, the fact that evil, sin, and death are in the world due to man's choice. Who would read the Romans, two Romans passages for us? <clears throat>
4: Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world for one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 8:20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God.
0: Thank you, Shirley. Summarize that, somebody. Why is there death in the world? Why is there sin? Why is there suffering? Why is there evil? Why? One man's choice. This world doesn't work the way it should be because of Adam and Eve. They failed. And with their fall goes the whole creation. Didn't we say a couple weeks ago it's a wonder the world works as well as it does. It is subjected to futility. It's groaning and waiting for the day when all the children of God will be revealed for who they are and they'll be exactly what they were created to be so will the creation. We're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. That's what we're waiting for. So is the earth. All those trees out there are saying, "Come, Jesus, come, Jesus, make it right," because it was Adam and Eve's choice that subjected this. There's no death in the world, no death before sin. The world worked perfectly before the fall. No death. I'm sorry. Yes. Because God
1: gave them free will,
0: right? The choice. He did. He gave them the choice. Once they exercised it, they lost the freedom to choose for God. They were enslaved to sin. Okay? That's really the only time on earth, as it were, human beings could freely choose until they're redeemed. Then you're set free from the tyranny of sin, and you can freely choose righteousness. That's one of the glories of being in union with Christ. Thank you. So, the orat, and I want to just look at this choice because... If you're talking to somebody about why there's sin and evil in the world, this is is where you have to start. What is the first objection to, no, wait a minute, Uh, I agree the Bible reports that we have sin and evil in the world because of Adam, but what's the first objection you'll hear from people? I, I didn't do that. Implication is, if I was there, I would have done differently. Oh, ye flatter yourself. (laughs) (laughs) so the objection look how can God hold me accountable for this terrible choice Adam made is ultimately an indictment on whom God himself that God erred choosing Adam to represent all of humanity and beloved God did not err he makes no errors he never sins he doesn't lie so that's how you want to meet that objection. Now here's one of the hardest, I think, unanswerable objections to the Christian worldview, and that is the next thing. Where did the inclination to sin come from in the hearts of two people who had no inclination to sin? Adam and Eve are made in perfect righteousness. There's nothing, so every choice you make, right, is predicated on a prior inclination to make that choice. The reason we, we choose good is there's something in us prompting in that way. The cho- reason we choose evil is we have an inclination towards choosing sin. Adam and Eve had no prior inclination to rebel against the will of God. None. Yet they did. I can't answer that question. Be wary of anybody who thinks they can. Most honest theologians will say, It happened. It happened. Now what do we do? Mary,
2: uh, Mike, but it it didn't take God by surprise. I no. Know. So I mean, it, it's not that He will Well, I don't know whether He willed it or not, but He will whatsoever that.
0: things come to pass.
2: So He He willed it uh, for the, the future of Christ coming. So yes. So rules. He knew,
0: right? Absolutely, He knew, and in a sense He willed it. We'll get to that sense okay. in just one second. Let's then move to this antimony, antimony, the word J.I. Packer uses in a wonderful little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's it's as much about the sovereignty of God and human choice as it is about evangelism. Anybody familiar with it? Probably came out in the 70s, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, Ivy Press, excellent book. This is where I got this word, antimony. Antimony are two truths, they look to us that they have to be in contradiction to each other, but in the economy and mind of God, they are not in contradiction. The Bible asserts both. We hold them in tension by faith. That is, God is sovereign over the significant, free choices of responsible human beings. The choices are free. God isn't coercing them, and those choices have we're accountable for those choices. They are significant. We're responsible for what we choose. Yet God is sovereign. So when it came to 9-11, or when it came to the first sin, or whatever tragedy, the the Holocaust, was God sovereign over that? Was he willing that? Yes, in the sense that nothing happens outside of his will, yet he himself is not the author, he is not the author of the evil that is being propagated uh, on this earth through the hearts of wicked people. It's a tension, you just have to affirm both. Gail? Yes, I think that's the biblical view. It, you know, when you're in the middle of it, it's really hard, right? Which is, which is why we who are you know, have our facilities and have our health and have our blessings, we need to pound that vision of reality into our minds so that when the suffering comes, that is the default mode of our thinking. I don't see it all. God has the big picture in mind. There's a glorious end. There's a reason why the Bible ends the way it does. There's a reason. Because we have a certain future hope, certainty, that God is going to conquer all of this and set it all right. So the, the whole point of Revelation is, God wins. Oh, it's bad. It may get worse on the earth for the church before it gets better. It's bad, but God wins. God wins. Look how it ends. Okay, so here are two verses that clearly hold these two things together. Somebody read the Acts 2, and this is uh, Peter preaching to his fellow Jews oh, at the day of Pentecost after or thereafter. Thank you, Emily. So what did evil human beings do, according to the verse? They killed Jesus. Was that horrible? It is the most horrible thing that's ever been done on the earth. Ever. A completely innocent man treated this way. The worst thing ever. Nothing compares. And it happened according to what? The predetermined plan of God. Are those people responsible for what they did? Yes. Yes. They did it according to whose will? God. What should they do? If, they, if you were a Jew who was a, who was a, or a Roman who was, in, who was responsible for this and you, you heard this sermon, what should you do? Repent. Ask for forgiveness. No one's, it's never too late for anyone who has breath in their lungs. We can only hope that some evangelist got to Hitler before he died, right? Would we want to see him in heaven if he repented? We're not so sure because we want justice. Why do we want justice? We're made in the image of God. And then the other verse a little bit later in Acts, this is the disciples praying to God. Somebody read the Acts 4, 27 passage.
3: But truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur.
0: Yeah. So, all these people conspired to do the worst thing in their human history, that's kill Jesus. According to what? What God predestined to occur. Absolute sovereignty of God, ten o'clock human responsibility, the Bible assumes and here's your, one of your beautiful case studies in the Old Testament, somebody read the end of the Joseph narrative, Genesis 50-20, somebody read that for us
4: As for you, you
1: meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it, out, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are
0: today So here's the picture of the gospel, God rescuing his people through one man and him as good as dead Joseph is a type of Christ and what is, what is being asserted here through Joseph's lips? What did his brothers mean for him? Evil. They meant evil. In that same thing, God was meaning good. Two things. The sovereignty of God, the human culpability of the evil of his brothers. The New Testament equivalent of that verse is one you probably all know. Somebody read Romans eight twenty eight for us.
1: And we know that
4: for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose.
0: Thank you, Daniela. So that's that's ultimately where we where we rest. And actually, if you think about what's going on in this part of Romans, you know, Paul begins with there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're supposed to go who read because of Jesus yeah. and he ends with nothing and he ends the chapter in the, basically the Mount Himalayas of Christian assurance nothing that separates from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus the Lord in the middle in a sense Paul pulls back the curtain on human reality what we see and experience and he gives us a glimpse into what's going on behind the scenes behind the, in the heavenly that's what revelation is basically revelation is sight into what's going on behind reality in the, in the spiritual world to what's taking place on the evil on the earth. And um, in, in that, we see that God is working his purposes. Gail?
1: Isn't that the perfect um, story to show that he works in the big picture? Because if he hadn't let Joseph go through all that horrible stuff, they would have starved. Because he's the one that deciphered the dream. Yep. And he was given the gifts by God. It wasn't that he was special. for yep. had that purpose so that gives us hope if something like the oh, Holocaust
3: is going on, God
0: has a beautiful description of the needs of Yes. I, I think of that from my, my own life. Yes. Good. Excellent. When, so, so, Danielle? I, I really love
1: the story of Joseph in Psalm 105 when it says of God describing all the wondrous deeds he's done to deliver his people. and then he said, and before he sent the famine, he sent somebody ahead of time, which was Joseph. And he sent him by way of being in prison and put in shackles and beaten and all that. And, uh, and during all those years in prison, he tested his character. And I'm sure Joseph didn't have the clear picture then with all the suffering. That's right. But it was all within God's providence. He already predestined that, you know, he sends Joseph, but we his evil brothers who meant evil, and um, I, I just think it's a great picture of yes. trust in God, even though we don't see the
0: picture. Yes, yes. excellent. Um, as we move to the last point, I did put in the foyer here this handout called The Sovereignty of God, and this is just use on your own, it's quite simple and self-explanatory, I've got a couple definitions for sovereignty for you, including a famous book by A.W. Penn Company, if you read, King, Sovereignty of God. At any rate, this is just a flyover of the Bible, and I've lifted out everything the Bible says God is sovereign over. And I just put it into a handout for you, in case there's ever any doubt about the sovereignty that we're asserting. And maybe you could add things. If you can add, let me know. I'll include the handout. So just take this for personal reading, okay? Well, let's see how then the Bible... Uh, 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 tells us, encourages us to not stumble over this mystery. Why does God allow bad things to happen to us? We don't always know. Often his purposes remain a mystery to us. Somebody read there for us in Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord
1: our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to ourselves forever. That we may observe all the words
0: Interesting how M- Moses then moves from, okay, God's got his secret things, but he has things he's revealed to us. And what are we supposed to do with those? Okay. Devour them. Devour them. They presumably stabilize you in a world of uncertainty and unknowns. The Word of God. We have this wonderful anchor as it will. How many people have said, I just wish God would eradicate all evil from the earth? I mean, Really, right? Isn't that the end of Psalm 139 Kind of, David gets like, kill the evildoers, slay them. What's the one problem with that request? That would be all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Eradicate me because I'm implicated in the problem. Okay. (laughs) So the Puritans used to say one ounce of sin is far worse than you than ten tons of suffering. Mm -hmm. Which I'm certain theologically is true. I'm not sure existentially that we believe that what might you be doing to get your heart and mind to the place where you do believe that? That you believe that one ounce of sin is far worse than you than ten tons of suffering. What might you do? Repent.
4: Focus on the cross. Look at the cross.
0: Let the cross expose your sin, your pride, your selfishness, your self-sufficiency, your unbelief. Come to hate your sin so much that, yes... One ounce of sin is far worse for me than ten tons of suffering. But I, I'm, right, it's very hard to live in that place. Nate?
3: Well, I think in all cases, if we're experiencing suffering, um, we should remember that our lives are models for unbelievers. So there's always, sure, there are things we don't know that are happening, but we can always say, okay, here's an opportunity for me to show Christ in my life as I'm going through this. So Excellent. if we think about other people and not just, like, what's happening to me, then that's a very different way that we will handle
0: that. Good. Excellent. And that's why a lot of Christians, with that view, when they've suffered, they really want to parlay that into opportunities to minister to other people. Chuck Colson wrote what? Born again because he was thrown in prison for mischief during the Nixon administration. Well, he wants to parlay that into ministering to other people, and you know, what came from that prison ministry. Phenomenal. Um, B. What we do know is it is not because he doesn't love us. When you know the love of God for you in Christ, who suffered immeasurable terror to freely deliver you from an eternity of unspeakable for an eternity of unspeakable joy, then no earthly trials can compare. That's the way Paul reasons it in Romans 8:18. 8, Somebody read that for us.
1: For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed
2: to us. Romans eight eighteen.
0: Now that is a man who suffered immeasurably. You've seen what he wrote in Second in uh, Second Corinthians. Is it uh, eleven? This litany of how he suffered. I mean, unbelievable. And he says that does stuff doesn't compare to the glory to be revealed. That's a really healthy place to be, isn't it? The resurrection proves Jesus is going to make all things new. All things bad will come untrue. We tend to compare our sufferings to what we think we deserve. Right? If we're we're sort of... 20th century Americans, we had the sense of, I deserve prosperity, I deserve peace, I deserve health. because that's, But go to a culture where you were born into abject poverty and half your children died at childbirth. You have no expectation of those things. You've never had those things. so Your expectations are so different. We tend to expect these things because it's, we've, been, we've been blessed to have them. But when we compare our sufferings, To what we truly deserve—a torturous hell, our sins warranted—then they don't compare to the glory to be given to us in Christ. Ergo, we should think more about what hell. Think more about what you deserved. It's how awful it is. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, the endless fire. Think about it. This is what Christ has delivered you from. And then finally, we end the problem of evil by saying, good, we have five minutes left, we'll do it. Um, uh, Don't stumble over this mystery. uh, Number three, God gives us himself and his son. Somebody read that little paragraph for us.
4: The sovereign God knows the full extent of evil like no one else. He has a son who suffered immeasurably and unjustly for the sake of his enemies. Jesus experienced in body and soul every kind of human suffering, thus assuring us that his heart is sympathetic, tender, gentle, and humble.
0: Thank you. So the the objection is that God can't relate to our suffering, and just the opposite is true. No one knows human suffering like our God, and he knows it in Christ. And you saw how wretched and dangerous and evil and messed up this world is. And God said, I'm going in. I'm jumping in. And I'm going to suffer torments no human being can imagine. The utter hell that every sinner Jesus redeemed on the cross, that hell, Jesus experienced on the cross. That's unfathomable. But that's what he suffered. He took the penalty of your sins, eternal hell. He took it in himself. Does Jesus know suffering and evil? Yes, he does. So his heart is the only place we can retreat for a refuge. So somebody finished by reading for us these verses that speak to us of the tender and gentleness of God from the Psalms.
1: Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Great is the glory of the Lord,
0: for though the Lord is on high, he regards the lowly. with these beautiful pictures of God's care for us in our suffering. So let's finish with this. You tell me the answer. We now live in a Genesis 3 world, but we live with what? How would you fill in the blank? Hope. We live with hope, trust, faith. Faith, trust, confidence. Come on, there's a lot of answers to this question. We live in a Genesis 3 world, but we live with assurance. assurance. God wins. He's going to rescue us out of this world at the right time. We live with peace. Joy in our trials, the Bible teaches us. Good. Faith. We live with a word from him. That sustains us and informs our thinking so that our thinking is right and accurate. We live in a Genesis 3 world with? Walking with Christ. With Jesus, who never leaves us or forsakes us, a very present help in time of trouble.
3: His Holy Spirit within us.
0: The Holy Spirit, teaching, comforting, guiding, assuring, testifying, and with each other. We're not meant to do this alone. Let's pray. Thank you, God, our Father, for Jesus who knows suffering like no one else. Lord, equip us with our own sufferings and trials through this and make us then blessings to others in theirs. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay.
4: Thank you.